0: Would you open up your Bibles this morning as our children head off to Children's Church? Uh, Would you open up your Bibles this morning to John chapter 14, verses 8 to 14, which is on page 1068. If you are using a pew Bible, page 1068, John chapter 14, verses 8 to 14. I have to say I was... uh, I'm still savoring and digesting the annual missions conference that we do in our church. And it, we had it, it ended last month, and I'm still uh, appreciating that. Um, I, I feel like it was like Thanksgiving, and I'm still going to the fridge, taking things out and, and digesting, you know, just the, the great things we learned. One of the things that really blessed me was our keynote speaker, uh, Mac Stiles, for those of you who are here at the missions conference, Mac Stiles spoke with us. If you weren't here, Mac is a, uh, he's a, a church uh, planter. He is um, a missionary, uh, a writer. He works in Dubai in the United Arab Emirates, and he uh, has a ministry among international college students there. His people come from all over the world to Dubai to study. It's a very cosmopolitan place. And, uh, and he has this very bold proclamation ministry where he tells these students about Jesus and about the gospel. He's a very bold ambassador for Christ. And you know, students from all over the world are coming to faith in Jesus. And many of them are going back to countries where if you wanted to go as an ambassador for Christ, you could not get a visa. Uh, Because it is not permitted. But they go back to their home countries and they're sharing the gospel. It's just a really exciting ministry. I was so encouraged by listening to him. And I I kind of think one of the reasons I was so encouraged by hearing about his ministry is that sometimes being an ambassador for Jesus in New England can be so discouraging. Because it's kind of the opposite here. You can't talk about your faith. I mean, you can, but it's just not really done. You you know, we think about uh, other parts of the world, um, other countries, in a lot of other places around the world, people are open to talking about religious things and spiritual things, but here where we live, it's, it's sort of frowned upon in a kind of post-Christian, post-religious, yeah, 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 I grew up with the church, I'm all set with that, we've put that in a box and it's tucked away. So, you know, it's easier to talk about politics, you know? You'd be safer saying, I kind of like the giants, than saying, you know, do you want to talk about Jesus? Uh, so, it, it, it's a difficult kind of thing. Um, there was a Sunday school class where Mac was teaching, and uh, someone asked him during the Sunday school, So, do you think it's harder to be an ambassador for Christ in Dubai, or is it harder in New England? And he didn't even think, he just said New England. And I was like, Whoa, you know, are you sure about that? Because in Dubai, they have Sharia law courts, you know? No, no, easier there than here. And so, so it was a real challenge. Uh, how do we be an ambassador for Christ in a kind of post-Christian, uh, intellectually skeptical climate in which you and I try to follow Jesus here? But I was so encouraged, not only by Mac, but also by this text, that Jesus has the authority to send us. Jesus is he, he is God among us, and He has promised us that we can do greater works through Him. Look at our text, John chapter 14, verses 8 to 14. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip, even after I have been among you such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I say to you are not just my own. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing His work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe on the evidence of the miracles themselves. I tell you the truth, anyone who has faith in me will do what I have been doing. He will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father and I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Son may bring glory to the Father. You may ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. The greater works. So here we have John 14, and, and just to kind of, again, give the, the flow, if, you, if you're new here this Sunday, we've been studying John. John chapter 13 to 17 is Jesus' last supper dialogue with his disciples he's trying to prep them and brief them for the fact that he's about to leave he's going to die which is going to freak them out but then even after he rises again he's only going to be with them a short time and then he's going back to the father's right hand he's going to be exalted in heaven so he's getting them ready for this state of affairs where they will be his disciples but he won't be present which is how we live every day and, and as part of that, he doesn't want them just to kind of hunker down and survive. He, he's trying to get them focused on the task and the mission that he's going to give them. And, and so he's, he's sort of talking about this with them. And this is where we pick up the conversation. Uh, is Jesus is telling them, look, I'm going away. Don't be frightened. Don't be discouraged. Then you have Doubting Thomas, just to kind of remind us from last week in verse 5. Thomas says, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? And... Then you have that incredible statement in verse 6. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Then he says in verse 7, if you really knew me, you'd know my Father as well. From now on you do know him and have seen him. And Philip, Now Philip's turn to jump in, and Philip says, Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough. You've, we've seen him? Where? We just want to see God. So, you know, doubting Thomas, I'm not sure. What are you talking about? But here's Philip. He's a little more noble. He's like, we just want to see the Father. Show us who God is. It's kind of a noble uh, request. Show us God. We just want to see God. We don't know where you're going. We don't really know what you're talking about, Jesus. But you know what? It doesn't matter. If you just show us God, we'll be happy. Show us God. It reminds me when Moses uh, was praying, God, show me your glory. I just want to see you. Down through the ages, philosophers and theologians and writers have, have written about this, this longing for the beatific vision, the vision of God. You know, I just, if we could just see God, if we could know who He is and where He is. And so Philip asks for the beatific vision. He, he sort of prays the Moses prayer, Lord, just show us the Father and that will be enough. I love how Jesus answers. He says, don't you know me, Philip? Even after I've been among you for such a long time. And then he drops this bomb Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. If you've seen Jesus, you've seen the Father. If you know Jesus, you know the Father. If you've come to Jesus, you've come to God. That is such a huge statement. Then he goes on, you know, don't you believe, verse 10, that I'm in the Father and the Father's in me? You know, believe me when I say this. At least believe based on the miracles. They should know this by now. He's been saying this all along. We've, we've bumped into this truth in different ways throughout the Gospel of John, and now Jesus is just kind of like laying it out right in front of their faces. You know, if you go back, to, let me just show you a couple for instances. Go back to John chapter one. Go back to the very first verse the very first verse of this gospel, where John is laying out who Jesus is. And it says in John 1, 1, in the beginning, just like the Bible starts out in the beginning, so John starts out, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And so right there in that first verse, we have the, the basic dynamic of what we call the doctrine of the Trinity. There's God, God speaks his word, and the word is with God, but the word was God. He's with and was at the same time. So there's one God, but that God, within that one God, there's a withness, there's, there's persons who interact. There's the Father, and there's the Son, and the Spirit. They're with each other, but they're only one God. We're not worshiping three gods. We're worshiping one God. And you say, how can that be? I have no clue. This is God we're talking about. That in the one God, there's a family. there's There's a community. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That God is a relational being within himself, enjoying himself, worshiping himself. But there it is from the very beginning, that within the one God, there's A word, and the word is with God, and the word was God. And then in verse fourteen, the word became flesh. That's Jesus. So John starts off the whole gospel with this very high view of Jesus, that He is God made flesh. But Jesus taught this. That's where John got this idea. So if you look at John, uh, turn over to John chapter fifteen, John chapter five, rather. Sorry, John chapter five. Look at verses sixteen to eighteen. Here's the the with and was with God, but was God. So he says in John 5, 16, Jesus had healed some guy on the Sabbath. And so because Jesus was doing these things, verse 16, on the Sabbath, the Jews persecuted him. How did he respond? Verse 17, Jesus said to them, my father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. For this reason, the Jews tried all the harder to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Or look at John chapter 10. One more, for instance. Here's Jesus in another argument with the crowds. Look at John chapter 10, verse 30. He says this flat out. John chapter 10, verse 30. I and the Father are one. One. And again, the Jews picked up stones to stone him, because that's blasphemy, unless you really are God. That's blasphemy. But Jesus said to them, I have shown you many great miracles from the Father. For which of these do you stone me? We're not stoning you for any of these, replied the Jews, but for blasphemy, because you, a mere man, claim to be God. And we could go on. We could look at John 8, where Jesus says, before Abraham was born, I am he just, again and again, he's asserting this, and it's getting him into trouble. So now you can imagine this frustration after three years of this, after all the disciples hearing these same things, listening to him, and they're saying, just show us God. We just want to see God. And he's going, <sighs> you know, you've been with me. If you know me, you know God. If you've seen me, you've seen God. If you're with me, you're with God. I'm the way to God because I am God, and no one comes to the Father except through me. And so this is the great, one of the great, I would call it a watershed truth, a watershed doctrine that is a, sort of a defining doctrine that Jesus is God in the flesh. Not a God in the flesh, but the one true Creator God, Yahweh from the Old Testament, Jehovah become a person that He's here with us. This is, it's in a watershed doctrine. It's, it's a line in the sand, and it sort of divides the views of Jesus to one side or the other. Because generally speaking, if you think about how the world views Jesus, if you think about how different cultures view Jesus, different philosophies and, and worldviews, generally speaking, throughout history, the world has viewed Jesus in a positive light, even a very positive light. Right? So, so you know, it's, it's very few who, who would look at Jesus in a negative light. Most honor him in some way or another. You know, we we talked about Islam. Islam has a high view of Jesus. It views him as a prophet. you Um, uh, you, You know, Jehovah's Witnesses honor Jesus as the first created one of God. He was the first thing God created. But there's that line, right? Not he is Jehovah, but he's the first one Jehovah created. He's a prophet. He's not God himself, but he's a prophet. Um, you, you know, you look at Unitarianism, for instance, uh, especially as it was founded in, in, you know, like the 18th, 19th centuries. As Unitarian was, was emerging, it, it still held Jesus as a great moral teacher, just not God, which is why it's Unitarian and not Trinitarian. And so, again, there's that line, high honor, but not saying, yes, he is God in the flesh. You, you know, you look at Hinduism, uh, he, he's in, maybe perhaps seen as an avatar, of one of the many gods. It's polytheistic. Or even Mormonism, which at its heart is polytheistic because it teaches that you can become a god if you follow all the right steps of your own planet and, and, and you, can, you can have a, you know, a goddess wife and together you can populate your planet and if those people follow the right steps, they can become gods. It's, it's polytheistic. So Jesus is a god, one among many. But again, there's honor, there's respect, there's even supernatural respect given. But there's that watershed issue. Is he the one true God in the flesh? And Jesus says, this is who I am. And so we as Christians, we affirm this. But you know, as I was reading this and thinking about all that, I was like, yeah, I affirm that as a Christian with my mouth, but do I really believe that? You know, it's easy to to be on this side of the line, say, oh yeah, Jesus is God. It almost rolls off the tongue too easily. And I wonder, is my heart across the line? Do I really love and worship and know him as God in the flesh? If I, you know, I wonder if I'm not more like Philip than I think, where I follow Jesus, I know Jesus, I believe in God, but look, show me the Father, show me who God really is. It's like, it's me, Jesus is saying, it's me. If you know me, you know the Father. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. If you're talking to me, you're talking to the Father. If you're worshiping me, you're worshiping God. I wonder how that kind of sincere belief in who Jesus is might affect my praying. I wonder how it might affect my worshiping. I wonder how it might affect my living. And I wonder how it might affect my being an ambassador for Christ in the world as I'm going out to tell the world about Jesus. And we don't have to wonder because he goes on to tell us what that means. If you look at verses 12 to 14, after rebuking Philip for his kind of incomplete faith, for his not fully seeing who Jesus is, he goes on to give the the positive of, hey, if you do believe, if you really believe who I am, then this is what you'll do. This This is what it looks like life on the other side of that line of truly embracing me. And, and he points out two things. There's probably a lot of things we could say about believing that Jesus really is the Son of God. Uh, but, but there's two here that Jesus wants to highlight. He says in, in verse 12, here's the first one, I tell you the truth, anyone who has faith in me will do what I have been doing. He will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father. So if we truly believe that he is who he claimed to be, we should Do, as he says here, greater things than these. So there's our second bombshell. Another bomb drops. So the first one was, if you've seen me, you've seen God. Wow. All right, not done yet. And if you believe, you'll do greater things than these. What? Say that again, Jesus. I will do greater things than the things you have done? Are you kidding me? He was talking about his miracles here believe on the evidence of the miracles, and then he says, if you have faith in me, you'll do even greater things than these. Like, okay, what does that mean? I need to know what that means, because that's a huge promise. Does it mean that I will do greater miracles than Jesus? Because he did some whoppers. He fed the 5,000 from a few loaves of bread. He turned water to wine. He, he gave sight to the blind. He, he took people who were paralyzed and made them to walk again he drove out demons he calmed the sea he walked on water he raised Lazarus from the dead and so is it saying that if that if I have real faith in him I will have a greater miraculous ministry than that but then what does that mean does that mean like he walked on water but I can walk on lava you know like and you know I'm, I'm not trying to be silly but it's like what does that mean what does greater mean that he raised a body from the dead, but I could raise a cremated person from the dead. Like, what is what is greater look like? Is that what he's saying? And certainly, we look at the apostles, and we look at their ministry, the ministry of the apostles in the book of Acts, and, and they did miracles. And yet, when you look at the apostles in the book of Acts, did they have a greater miraculous ministry than Jesus? I'm not sure. So, so, let me say this. On the one hand, I don't want to deny that God can do miracles. In fact, just the opposite. I believe God is the same God. I believe that Jesus is at the Father's right hand, and I believe God can do miracles. I believe God answers prayer. I believe, I believe many of us in this room could come up here and form a line and come to the mic and talk about the way God has answered prayers in startling ways, that defy kind of coincidental rationalistic explanations that God heals and God answers prayer it's amazing what he can do so I want to affirm that but I just want to say I'm not sure that's what Jesus is talking about here in this text that's what I'm saying so what does it mean then to do greater works in what sense will those of us who believe in him do greater things well maybe think about it this way Look at that phrase. He says, because I am going to the Father. I think that's a key. The person who believes in him will do greater things because I am going to the Father. So the greater things are the result of the fact that Jesus is going to the Father, which means what? That he's going to die, he's going to be buried, he's going to rise again, then he's going to go to the Father's right hand. So because of his work on the cross, his resurrection and his exaltation, Because of that thing, the greater works will result. So so I think the greater works have to do with the the position they, they, they hold in the unfolding of God's plan. They're greater because they take place after the cross and the resurrection. So, okay, think about it this way. Before the cross and the empty tomb, there's Jesus. He's doing miracles. He's teaching. What was the point of it? Why was he doing all that? What was the goal that he wanted to happen because of his teaching and his miracles? It was so that people would believe in him. You want a one-phrase summary of the whole Gospel of John. Here it is. This is the whole Gospel of John's about. Believe in Jesus and you'll have eternal life. He is God in the flesh. Believe in him, you'll have eternal life. And you don't have to study John. There you go. So it's just, that's the whole thing right there. And so Jesus, he taught He did miracles to prove that what he was saying was true. And after three years of all of that ministry, how many people believed in him? It was just a handful. You see that in John chapter 12. Sort of the, the first half of the gospel of John concludes in John 12. And it's like, well, even after he'd done all these things, verse 37, they still would not believe. So he does this whole ministry, miracles like I've never done in my life, and, and at the end of it, people don't believe. Even his own disciples are like, wait a minute, what? Who are you? Where are you going? We don't get it, really. Just show us the Father, because we don't know what you're talking about. You know, they're so confused, and they're just, they are just—they don't totally understand what he's doing. They're freaking out. They're panicking. They're just like, you know, just, just hens kind of, you know, being chased around. And they're like, bark, 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 you know, they don't know what's going on. They're clueless. And then Jesus dies. He rises again. And then after he rises again... They get it. Jesus opens their minds so they can understand the scriptures. And they start going, aha, you know. And in fact, we'll study in a couple of weeks that he says, I'm going to give you my Holy Spirit to bring back to mind everything I said to you. So now it's like all the, the different puzzle pieces start coming together. They're going, oh, I get it now. You know, it's like a really good movie where it's a whole mystery. Then at the end of the movie, the mystery is revealed. And then they replay the movie and you start seeing how all the things fit together. And so that's what it's like. They suddenly go, I get it. And now they're preaching confidently and clearly from the Old Testament who Jesus is. It makes sense. Ah, the Trinity, I get it. Kind of. I get it, you know. They start making sense of things. And they preach and people start believing. Not onesies and twosies, but hundreds and thousands. And today... Hundreds of millions and billions have come to faith in Christ. You know, there's a viral nature that just doesn't happen before the cross and the empty tomb. So yes, I do believe God can still do miraculous things today. And sometimes he does those things to, to help people see who he is. But, but I think the greater work is, is the results and the overflow of his death, burial, and resurrection. I think it's like what Jesus says in John chapter 4. When he tells the disciples, look, the fields are white for the harvest. You guys go out and work. You're going to do a great harvest work, but the hard work has been done by someone else, namely himself. I think it's like what Jesus says in John chapter 12 where he says, unless a a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it just remains a grain. But if it does die, it produces many grains. And so because of what he's about to do on the cross, there is this great explosion that will happen on the other side that is still going on today, that is still going on today. So you look around the world today, and God's gospel is moving forward. It can't be stopped. It can't be stopped by politicians or dictators. Nothing can stop the gospel. Even countries that are very hostile to the gospel, sometimes the gospel just goes even more viral in those places, believe it or not. It's amazing. Nothing stops the message of Jesus. The greater works are happening. Not just more people believing, but it's almost like a categorically different kind of thing that's happening than even under Jesus' ministry and the kind of faith that we saw. And we're part of those greater works. Um, You know, I think about Max Stiles talking about the, the gospel going out through those international students. That's that continual viral spread of the message of Jesus as people are really coming to believe in him. And that's why it gives me encouragement here in New England that, that God can work here. It's not dependent upon how persuasive you are or how clever I am or anything else. It's, it's His power. We could still do these greater works because He is God in the flesh and He is sitting at the Father's right hand. And so we have confidence because of who He is, not because of who we are. So we can even do greater works. During the uh, uh, Sunday school. Um, when Mac Styles was here, somebody asked Mac a question. They said, uh, you, you know, how do we develop a greater urgency for evangelism? How do we develop a greater urgency to be ambassadors for Christ? And, and this person in our church asked a very complex question about that. And Mac kind of listened and he gave a really simple three word answer. So it's like, you know, one of those brilliant moments where someone gets a really complex question and they give a really simple answer that answers it. And, uh, and he said, Take more risks. He's like, you want a greater urgency for evangelism? Just take more risks. Look, you know it. You just need to step out in faith and trust that God is who he says he is and that he's going to do what he says he does. Take more risks. And I was like, oh, wow, maybe it's that simple. I just need to take more risks. So I was really convicted by that. Um, that That's one of the, you know, pieces of turkey I'm still chewing on from the conference. And uh, so I decided to take some risks. I I thought, you know, instantly coming to mind are like three guys I know who, um, you know, uh, don't don't know, I don't know if they know the Lord, I don't know where they're at, and so, uh, you know, I, I emailed one of these guys, and I was like, hey, let's get together for coffee, and so, you know, I'm like, I'm sure he won't say yes, he did, so I was like, oh, okay, so we got together for coffee, and we we're talking, you know, uh, politics was just after the election, so we we're debriefing on that, and then we we're talking about all these other things, and so I'm like, okay, well, this was nice talking to him, and then at the end of the conversation, just like out of the blue, he goes, so, uh, why did you become a pastor anyway? I was like, oh, um, here we go. I could either be bold and take a risk, or I can just let it drop. So I said, well, uh, actually, first I became a Christian before I became a pastor. And I said I became a Christian when I I, I heard the gospel in a church my my mom took me to. Uh, And you know the gospel is uh, the message that Jesus uh, came for us because God made us, We're his, we belong to him, he owns us, and yet we have broken his laws, we've not lived his way, we've created our own religion, we've even told ourselves that we're gods, that the the, the divine is within us, and and we've just usurped God's law and usurped God's creation, and we deserve judgment, but rather than judging us, God sent Jesus, his own son, to die, and he rose again, and now, through faith in Christ, you can be forgiven, and, and so that's what I came to believe the gospel, and then, you know, and I went on. And they talked about how the gospel impacted my life and impacted my family. And uh, it, it was great, you know, just take a risk, put it out there. And then the next week I was at this uh, party and, and I was talking to one of the coaches who coaches one of my kids' sports teams. And, and, and the, you know, I was just having this chat about the sports and whatever. And then out of the blue, he looks at me and goes, so how did you become a pastor anyway? <laughs> and I was like, well, <laughs> first I became a Christian. And I was like, wow, thanks, God. Like, I, I'm clearly that remedial that I need, like, a setup like that, you know. <laughs> I'm not ready for even farm ball. I need, like, t-ball, you know. And someday I'll have farm ball, and then maybe someday I'll be playing, you know, fast pitch. But, like, I, I just need that. I, you know, I just appreciated God's sense of humor in that. But you, you just ask the Lord, and he gives you opportunities, and then you have to be bold and take them. And I, I, I just find it challenging. It's, it's such a weird thing, just kind of personal note here. I find it so easy to speak in front of huge crowds. Like the more people I can talk to, the more energized I am. Like some of you may be like, that's crazy, but that's how I feel. But like one-on-one across a coffee table, someone saying, Why'd you become a pastor? I'm like, <gasps> <gasps> <laughs> So I'm just I'm kind of a lousy personal evangelist, but I'm trying to grow. I'm just trying to take more risks and Take the opportunities God gives. So just keep praying for me that, that I would be, you know, when I'm not up here wearing a suit and tie, that I would be that faithful Christian just out in the world taking risks, just like you. That's what we're called to be. Why? Because he's called us to greater works. He's called us to be a part of what he's doing in the world. New England is not an unsolvable Rubik's Cube for the Lord. He, he knows What to do? We just need to have faith in him and believe that he is who he says he is. And then that leads, just just to quickly wrap this up here, look at the, the second thing that will happen if we truly believe in verses 13 and 14. He says, I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Son may bring glory to the Father. You may ask me for anything in my name and I will do it. So, wow, there's a third bomb that he just dropped. Woo, what do we do with that? So if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Kaboom, wow. And then you'll do greater works. Are you kidding me? There's another bomb. And then ask for me anything in my name and I will do it. Wow. Now what does that mean? I'll tell you, that's one of those verses that if you cut and paste that verse, you could have a lot of fun with that. If you like highlight it, cut, put it in a different document, well, the Bible says, you know, you could really have fun with that verse. You know, anything in his name and he'll do it? All right, dear God, I am asking. For one million (laughs) dollars. In Jesus' name. Hmm? You know, right? Okay, so it doesn't mean that. And that's why it's so important whenever you're interpreting the Bible, it's not like, what do you think or what I think, or what does it mean to you or what does it mean to me? You have to ask, what does it mean in context? You know, words mean what they mean in context. And so you look at the context, and what's the context? The promise of the greater works. And so whatever else it means to ask for anything in his name and he'll do it, it certainly has to include this idea of praying for the greater works. Now you could look at what comes after. We'll study this next Sunday, but look at uh, verse 15. If you love me, you'll obey what I command. I think that's another part of asking. You have to love him and be in obedience to him. But, you know, so there's your, there's your context. But within that, boy, what a promise to ask him for anything in his name. Am I asking for the greater works? I think sometimes my prayer life reflects the focus of my Christian life. And so my Christian life so often, unfortunately, kind of uh, goes down to a low simmer, and my fervency for the Lord is low, and, and, and my Christian life is kind of like, okay, just get through this week, you know, try to get things done, you know, try not to get stressed out, don't do anything stupid that could either get me fired or land me in jail, and if I... You know, I could just kind of make it through the week and maybe read my Bible a couple times. Like, I, I sort of survived. And it's unfortunate that it's, my prayer life will reflect that. I'll have a kind of survival prayer life. Like, dear God, you know, just help me this week. And my ankle's kind of sore. Could you help me with that? That's bumming me out. And, you know, and then there's this bill. And then there's this thing at church I'm trying to figure out. Could you fix that? You know, and you've got to pray for all those things because he did teach us to pray. Give us this day our daily bread, right? But he also taught us to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. That's a greater work kind of prayer. So you've got to pray both. It's not an either or. You've got to pray for the basic things. You know, If you lose your car keys, ask God to help you find them. I mean, I, I do that sometimes. But like, pray that his kingdom would come here in New England. Pray that the greater works would happen. Take those risks of faith reaching out to people and be praying that God would do something that, that you couldn't explain. Just pray for a greater work, you know, even here in New England. There was a great Scotsman in uh, this, the uh, 16th century as the, as the Reformation was happening all over Europe and then going into the British Isles. It even, the Reformation even made it to Scotland, I don't know, it's really amazing, but it made it to Scotland. And there was this, the guy who sort of is known for the Scottish Reformation is uh, John Knox. And John Knox was this, you know, you can just imagine like the, the, the rough, burly Scotsman. Uh, this was John Knox. He was a booming voice and a, a strong preacher. Before he became a preacher, he, he came to faith and was sort of mentored by this, this other guy named Wishart. And he actually became Wishart's bodyguard because of, you know, it's tumultuous times to, to believe in the doctrines of the Reformation might get you killed. And and so for a while, Knox was his bodyguard. He would follow Wishart around carrying a two-handed sword. How cool is that? You know, like so anyway. And then and then Wishart got burned at the stake by uh, by by Mary, uh, Bloody Mary. So he gets burned at the stake. And so now Knox is the new preacher to fill Wishart's place. So you know, just imagine like Braveheart as your pastor. This is Knox, and uh, he's this you know crazy Scotsman, and and he just is so passionate. That the people of Scotland would come to believe that salvation is through faith in Christ, not the sacraments of the church, not through your good works, it's justification by faith. And people were dying burning at the stake over this doctrine. And here you know, we, we've never suffered anything like that for our faith. It, it, would you be burned at the stake for the doctrine of justification by faith? You know, people were burning in those days because they're willing to say the way to heaven is through faith alone in Jesus, not through the sacraments, not through penance, not through the church, but through Christ alone. And that was Knox. He was preaching this, and he just so wanted his countrymen to come to know the doctrine of free grace in Christ. And he prayed this prayer. His prayer was Lord, give me Scotland. Or I die. Love that prayer. And oh, that God would take my heart and our hearts and bring us to a place where we could pray, not just the words, but from the heart Lord, give us New England, or we die. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I, I do not yet pray, give me New England or I die, because Lord, I feel there's a more foundational work that you must do first. You must first cause us, Jesus, to see that you truly are the Son of God, to truly believe that the greatest news the world has ever heard is that we can be reconciled to our maker through faith in his Son. And Lord, until, until we get rocked by the gospel, we know that we won't pray, give us New England or we die. And so, God, I pray that you would do a deep work in us, that you would give us a deep love for Jesus and a deep faith in him, that you would help us to be rocked and awed by the fact that we are pardoned sinners by grace, that, Lord, the doctrine of justification by faith, being forgiven by faith would be so precious to us, Lord. And Lord, until that happens, God, just keep working on our hearts. Just show us the gospel. And then, Lord, once we see it, we know that we will pray from our hearts because we'll want people to know you. We want people we love to meet the God that we love. And then, Lord, we will pray, give us New England or we die. So, God, I pray, Jesus, in your name, Jesus, I'm asking for you to do the greater work among us first, that you would cause us to honor and treasure you And then may it burst forth in white-hot prayer for the salvation, not just of New England, but the nations. We pray this in Christ's name.